This last week, Kings is led out where I work. I'm a, the spiritual life director at uh, Kings Academy, and this is our last um, week of official school. They've got finals next week. And one of the students gave me this as a parting gift. I don't know if you can see it, but it's Jesus on a keychain. <laughs> and I thought it was oh so apropos for our Jesus series and the very ending of it. And not only is it Jesus on a keychain, and it's brand new, Jesus hasn't been worn yet, the sticker is still on there, uh, by Divinity Innovations, and it's called Icon Light, because Jesus lights up your path. So it's a little Jesus flashlight coming out of the bottom of his robe. And it's, uh, I just was so touched, apparently there's a heart on Jesus, and the heart says love, and there's some gold flames coming out of that heart which is a very, apparently, Jewish symbol. I don't know. Um, Just kidding. That was a joke. That was a joke. Not. So not. (laughs) Um, But instead of the blue Miss America sash, he's got the red, so he's very special this time around. And I thought this was appropriate to share with you because we're in the middle of, well, we're at the very end of our Jesus series, and we're going to share a little bit of the last piece. And once again, I I feel... um, led and moved by the icons of Jesus that exist in our culture and exist around us and what we have created out of Jesus. And I was very touched by this, obviously. Um, But again, astounded by how it is that we see him and the the ways in which we think about this person who has radically transformed um, all of Western civilization. So I thought I'd share that with you for fun. If you're here for the very first time or visiting for a first or second time, we welcome you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's just a delight to have you here. We're a small little church plant today. I think it's week 32 of uh, Spark, so we're really kind of thrilled about that. And you guys came again, and so thrilling. Just a reminder that when you come, that's when church happens. It doesn't happen when we put on, you know, the music and the message, but it's when you come and you fellowship with one another and you converse and you touch base and all that good stuff. And for the last um, several weeks, we've been doing the Jesus series, and today we're going to finish it up. wanted to just kind of remind us of a couple things. If you missed a couple of those teachings, wanted to remind you a little bit of where we've gone. We started off with the question of, who do you say I am? Which was a question that Jesus asked in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And the question is ultimately uh, to get us started at a place of recognizing that we have images and pictures of Jesus just simply because we live in this culture and Jesus, his name is so pervasive, etc., that it takes some time and some work for us to kind of set aside some of the things that we have in our minds and the images and the conceptions we have to get to the real Jesus, to ask that question. Uh, after that, Danielle uh, shared a message called, Who's Your Daddy? It's following up with the second question, and talked a little bit about Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and talked about how we are also, as a result of followers of Jesus, meshed right into that identity as well. And so the, those of us who are following Jesus, those of us who are on this path, can be certain of our identities as well. Certain of our identities and relationship with the Father, that we are not just lone religious people. Um, Then we went to, uh, we had an Easter service. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And the women who showed up at the tomb um, are there, and the angel asked them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Which is a fascinating question because they're not there looking for the living, they were actually there looking for the dead. 
And so the question itself illuminates something about each and every one of us that we are actually probably looking for the living in everything that we do, in our careers, in our lives, even in our families, and in the things that we accomplish, in the things that we can do. And hopefully we find that our living life that we are actually looking for is found in the person of Jesus. And then we took a little bit of a break. We had the Spark Learning Seminar, Faith and Technology, and Chris Lockett and our good friend Eric Allison joined us for that, which was a fantastic time. Danielle shared an amazing um, seminar on, the, on setting the stage in Virginia, so if you didn't have a chance to listen to those, those are on the website. Back into our Jesus series, we talked about temptation, and we talked about how the temptations that we face in life are often moral temptations. They are the temptations to do those bad things or to do those things that we know that we're not supposed to do or, or even to do those things that we want to do. Those are the temptations that we often face. But ultimately, the temptations that are given to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 are temptations of identity, temptations to not see yourself in relationship with the living Lord of the universe, a temptation to see yourself as less than that. And so that may, might uh, perhaps be our greatest temptation. And hopefully we see uh, that through the questioning and through the struggling and through all of that uh, that we are going through, we are realizing that the tests uh, that Jesus is going through is actually illuminating and exposing what is already within Jesus. We talked about the two different kinds of tests. One of them is like this essay and exam and how much did you actually cram, but the other test is like a taking a car on a test drive and the manufacturer gets it out on the road and drives it around to show off what the manufacturer has put into the car. And so all of us have been created in God's image and when he tests us, when, he, when we go through those, it's not just to see if we have something within us. It's to illuminate what is already in us. Um, next Sunday after that, uh, Danielle talked about who do you follow and talked about discipleship and getting dusty, following Jesus with passion, and, and then taking hold of the community of people that are following Jesus together. And then she talked about who's in charge here and the kingdom and the message of the kingdom and about how heaven sometimes is often this word that we use to mean the afterlife. But heaven is something that Jesus teaches is here and now and can be taken hold of right here and now. And then Betty Ann shared with us a wonderful message on her work with the BAATC, which is the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition, of finding that kingdom here in our backyard and how we can be kingdom bringers. Um, and then last week, Danielle shared on how much more a amazing uh, scope of teachings and getting into the history and the background of the teachings of Jesus, illuminating how much more we can understand uh, the breadth and the depth of what Jesus is bringing. Um, some fantastic stuff. So if you missed any of those, that's a little bit of the scope that we've gone through. And as we mentioned at the beginning, this is just barely scratching the surface of Jesus. So we're going to bring it to a close. And this final message entitled, Who Do You Say He Is? Who do you say that he is? Now that we've gone through a couple of those teachings, I want to ask the question to you and get a little bit more personal and get a little bit maybe more devotional and then look at this question through the lens of history. What has really happened with Jesus through history and how does that illuminate perhaps what we can do uh, today? 
If you have your Bibles, you can go to John chapter 1, and we're going to read a couple verses. And I like, um, when I teach at the school, I like for the kids to have their own Bibles, because I like for them to highlight and underline and take notes in their Bibles. Um, So I would encourage you to do that as well. If you don't have a Bible, I'm sure that there's Bibles in the back for you. John chapter 1, starting in verse 2. In the begin, there it is. In the beginning was the word. <laughs> In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was John chapter 1. Flip over to John chapter 20. We're going to bookend the gospel of John and use this as our framework for our message for this evening. John chapter 20, starting in verse 30, at the very end of the gospel, the writer of the gospel of John writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life. In his name. I love that verse because we started off the Jesus series saying that there's just not enough time. And John ends this gospel saying, there's just not enough books. There's a whole bunch more things that Jesus has done. And we, there's just not enough books in the world to write that down. Now, one of the things I want to point out, and we'll use this as our framework, is this. At the very beginning of the gospel, John starts off with this word. And we could spend a whole bunch of time thinking about what does this word mean? In the ancient Greek world into which Jesus comes, this word is the word logos. And you are all familiar with the word logos. Everybody say logos. Logos. Now, you are all familiar with this because it is the ending of virtually every subject that we study, like biology and anthropology and zoology. It's the very end that sums up uh, the categories that we have today. We've inherited this Greek world. And what does that word logos mean? But yet the ordering, the logic, the reading, the power behind all of existence. And if you study this word logos, you realize that in the ancient mind and in the ancient concept, this word logos is really that thing that holds everything together, as we just sang. What is that ordering principle? What is that ordering logic? What is that existence or that thing that holds it all together? Well, the ancient Greeks came up with the word for word, which is logos. And John starts off his gospel by saying, in the beginning was this word, as if to speak to the culture to say, yes, we agree, in the beginning was this ordering thing, this logic, this thing that holds everything together. And then in verse 14, that word does something not so wonderful, according to the ancient Greek mindset or thinking. The word becomes flesh, this very... Um, crude thing that you and I carry around with us all the time. That word 
becomes flesh. So he starts off with the idea of this word, this ordering concept, becoming flesh, becoming us. And then he ends with his gospel with this statement, through believing, uh, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Two things are going on here that I think is happening. Number one, it is a reference to the Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy story. For those of you who have been studying maybe the Bible for a little while or are familiar, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy formulate this central, um, central corpus of writings called the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses. And it's amazing to me that in Genesis 1 is the exact same phraseology, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a parallel phraseology that John 1 uses. And then at the end of the Torah, at the very end in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there's this passage there that says, I have given you a choice between life and death, and I pray that you choose life. And all of these things that have been written, meaning Genesis through Deuteronomy, all of these things that have been written are written so that you may have life. And I'm getting ahead of myself. I get so disappointed sometimes when religiosity and Christianity sometimes and the ways in which church sometimes communicates are oppressive religious things that you're supposed to adhere to. But these things, these guidings, these teachings, there's something amazingly beautiful in this book that we hold that is meant to give us life, full life, abundant life, breathing life, the very best kind of life that there is. So there's two things that are going on. Number one, I think John is taking the very history of the Jewish understanding of Genesis through Deuteronomy and saying, all of that history that we've understood is now coming to fulfillment in who Jesus is. And if you found life, if you found vitality, if you found prosperity in following the teachings of the Torah, of Genesis, and of the stories, then how much more will we also find life in the life and the teachings and the, the ministry of Jesus? And then number two, what I think is going on here is that just like the word logos is like an ordering, there's two ways of understanding or gaining information. One is cognitive, to think about, to understand, to have concepts in our minds. Uh, We have theological frameworks. We understand that Jesus is God, or we make those statements. So we make those affirmations up here. But then there's a second and more powerful way which is what happens here. When you have an intimate experience, when something transforms you, when you engage with an event in this world that transforms here. And it's not just something that you know, but it's something that you feel. It's something that engages the very bones of your existence. And so I am hoping through this message that we will see that throughout history, we're going to chart through the Jewish history, through Greco-Roman history, and then to our history today, into our modern world. I'm hoping that you take away two things. There are things to know. There are things to understand. There's intellectual things that we can engage with. But then there's a second thing, which is Jesus Christ, be the center of my life. Let me engage. Let me experience. Let me feel something deep. Let Christ 
Let Jesus truly make a difference in how I live, in my marriages, in my friendships, and my workplaces, in my calling, in my vocation. Those two things. Okay, ready to go? That was just the introduction, by the way, just in case you were wondering. As an outline, I'd like to share with you Um, There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I actually think there are eight, but there are seven that scholars and biblical uh, study people take a look at. I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. I am the gate in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. And I am the vine, John chapter 15. Now, what you have to understand is that throughout Jewish history and the world that Jesus shows up in, in the Hebrew culture is that the ways in which people thought about reality were very concrete, symbolic, metaphorical. So you don't just come and say that God is provider. You say that I am the bread of life. It's something you can smell, something you can taste, something that you can feel, something that you can um, hold in your hand. It's something very, very tangible. So what Jesus, what the gospel writer of John is doing is setting up this Uh, explanation and letting you know, kind of like with lights on your dashboard and saying, this person, Jesus, is fulfilling something that you are familiar with, like the bread of life. uh, Does anybody remember the story of the manna from heaven that God provides the bread of life? And deep within the Jewish culture and the understanding is this this idea that God has provided bread, bread from heaven, and he is our life and our sustenance. And Jesus comes along and says, I am that bread of life. Remember that story? Well, I am that as well. What about the light of the world? As the Jewish people exited out of Egypt, there's a story that's told regarding God coming down as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and is providing that light to them and leading them and guiding them through the wilderness. And Jesus is in many ways saying that I am that light. Remember that that way, the way in which God met you there, remember the way in which God ministered, the way God cared for you? Well, I am that too. And there's other references in the the Psalms and in the prophets about the great light that Israel is supposed to be to the nations. Um, The gate, which is this uh, barrier that you're supposed to cross or this protective place that keeps people and sheep protected, well, there's this gate of salvation in Psalm 118 that he may be referring to there. The good shepherd, many of you know Psalm 23, I am the good shepherd, the wonderful passage there. Um, And then the shepherd that's found in Isaiah in Ezekiel, where God was caring for his people, where God was providing for his people. Jesus is saying, I am that good shepherd. So all those things that you remember about how God took care of you there, I am now taking care of you here. The resurrection and the life Um, Remember the story in Ezekiel 37 of the dry bones, and they come to life, and Daniel talks about the resurrection of the dead. And so all of these stories that are are deep within the history and the mindset of these people are saying, wait, wait, the resurrection and the life that's, that's supposed to happen at some particular time, well, it's coming to fruition in Jesus, in the raising of Lazarus and, and the life that Jesus lives. The way, the truth, and the life may have uh, references to Isaiah 40 and Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus 34 and Genesis 2, and all the full encompassing of not only the beginning creation story, but the ways in which the prophets lived and moved in, in history. And then the vine, where God is coming as a, 
the metaphor and the symbol of God as a tender, a vine keeper, somebody who wants to protect uh, the vine and the vineyard so that the fruit will bear um, good fruit for the people. And so all of these things that he's mentioning, the seven I am statements, most likely have resonances and reminders to the fullness of the story. And then ultimately, in the very end of the summation of the whole thing, encapsulated in both the beginning and the middle and the end of John, is this statement, I am. So not only I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, but ultimately, I am. And if you take a look at this statement and compare it again to uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 3, when Moses has this wonderful encounter with God, and Moses, God tells Moses, I'm going to send you to the people. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you are going to be my representative. Moses says, who am I supposed to say sent me? Like, they're going to ask me your name. Who am I supposed to say sent me to them? And God says, I am the existing one. And so what Jesus is doing by invoking that in John chapter 8, he says it in in John chapter 4 as well. He's making an astounding claim that the very history that we've understood of how God has come down and blessed the people of Israel, worked through the people of Israel, has told his story through the people of Israel, Jesus is now encompassing and embodying all of that in who he is. That is an incredible proclamation. It's, to, it's almost as if we're saying, like the genie in Aladdin, phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space, which Daniel, I think, already mentioned once before. And this is a claim of Jesus that I think we don't fully understand all the time, especially when we make trinkets out of Jesus or we just use his name very casually. This is the very, the logos, the power of God, the very presence of this unifying force of how God has created this entire universe, the heavens and the earth and everything that is within it encompassed in this man, encompassed in this person. And to the Jewish mindset then, I would suggest that Jesus came in and radically transformed the thinking and the understanding of these early followers. What other religion moves in this way? That a God in heaven would come down here and take on this very primitive, fleshly stuff. What other religion, what other God would do that? What other God would condescend? And what other message conveys this kind of love? This is a radical Amazing, revolutionary idea and thought. And this is why we study Jesus. is because this is the claim that he's making. And if this is true, if this is true, then getting in touch with Jesus, getting following Jesus, understanding more of who he is, is getting in touch with this phenomenal cosmic power. And again, not just here then, but also here. That can radically, if he knows and he created everything about how we live and move and have our being, then he knows how relationships work. He knows how communication works. He knows how marriage works. He knows how vocation and calling works. He knows how identity works. He knows how psychology works. He knows about all of that. So could it possibly transform the way we're thinking? This message, and this is where I get really excited, 
the message of who Jesus is doesn't then just stay in the Jewish and Hebrew culture. Now, remember, the very first followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were a part of a movement called The Way, which was a Jewish sect that emerged onto the scene in the first century. But it didn't just stay there. It went into a Greco-Roman culture. Now, what's in the Greco-Roman culture? People like this. Now, these people <laughs> had to throw that in there. If you haven't seen Princess Bride, you need to go watch it now. I just, you just need to make sure that that, that happens. And I, lo- I, lo- I love that quote. The Greco-Roman world, is, now you could spend the rest of your life studying, and some people do, but what you have to understand is that there are major things that were emerging that set the culture for this way, the way in which they thought about the world. Basically, philosophies and mythologies. And the philosophies, again, were these ideas um, of how to think about the world, how to perceive it, how to understand it, and how to interact with it. And the mythologies, the Greek gods and the goddesses, were the embodiment of then how to behave. And so if you understood certain ways in which the gods and the goddesses would act and behave, you, too, should act and behave this particular way way. It was a way of putting some sort of framework and some sort of understanding. And society, Greco-Roman society, was yearning for some sort of understanding for the chaos of this world. And they developed all sorts of variety of things, and you can study this for a long, long time. But what's fascinating to me is that these mythologies and these philosophies did not fully convince people, and I would make the argument, nor did they fully satisfy. For as you read through the history of what happens in the Greco-Roman world, the things that they held on to so tightly ultimately fell short. And though Greek, though Greece and Rome had a very strong attitude towards the things that they believed, the very things that they held on to were ultimately their downfall. Greek, the Greek mindset held on to a very strong pride in the sense of I am everything. And you can still kind of feel that even uh, today, to this day. I remember sharing in, I think it was 2004, I've shared this before, that the Athens, when the Olympics were in Athens, the prime minister of Athens came out at the very beginning of the opening games of the Olympics and says, I, we are so proud to host the Olympics in Athens because we want to show the world what Greeks can do. This kind of pride, this kind of sense of hubris and arrogance that we are so great in this world. And then Rome, their problem was insecurity. They were so afraid that people were going to get across, they were going to take over their, their kingdom, their world. And so this pride of Greece and this insecurity of Rome, when they meshed together, left society in chaos. There was that particular mix left people with an oppressive government, left people with an experience of injustice, and left people with a sense of a widening gap and rift between rich and poor, uh, the aristocracy and the common people. And it was into this world, and that's a very brief summation, obviously. It was into this world that Jesus and the movement of Jesus comes. And there's so many things I wanted to share with you. Just a couple quotes from a couple books that might help us understand. 
Interestingly, what established humility as a virtue in Western culture was not Jesus' persona exactly, or even his teaching, but rather his execution, or more correctly, his followers' attempt to come to grips with his execution. Honor was proof of merit. Shame, the proof of worthlessness. Notice the feel there of honor and shame and and all that kind of stuff in in the culture. But what does this say about the crucified Jesus? That was the question confronting the early Christians. Logically, they had just two opinions. Either Jesus was not as great as they had first thought, his crucifixion being evidence of his insignificance, or the notion of greatness itself had to be redefined to fit the fact of his seemingly shameful end. Christians took the other option. For them, the crucifixion was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation, but proof that greatness can express itself in humility. The noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others. Now that fascinates me into this world where Greek pride rules your idea, your your stature, your identity, the ways in which you live in this world and the ways in which you perceive. Here comes a movement that says, no, greatness is not in what you achieve. Greatness is in what you lay down. And into this world, This movement of Jesus, of humility, of self-sacrifice, of service, met this pride of Greece and the insecurity of Rome and the chaos of that. And people began to shift and to change and to say, I think there's a better way. And this is how, one of the reasons why the Christian movement in the early Greco-Roman world began to spread. Because before, with pride and arrogance and hubris and all the things that I can achieve, all the things that I am great at, they left the world in chaos and the disparagement between rich and poor and aristocracy and common people and life just, and vulnerability ultimately. But with humility and service and laying down your life, people's lives are being transformed. People's sense of community and connection with, with each other was being experienced in ways never thought before. And then to the cults, to the mysteries, to the mythologies and the philosophies, Richard Tarnas says this in his book. But while some of the mystery religions emphasize the evil imprisonment of matter, which which only initiates could transcend, early Christianity heralded Christ as inaugurating the redemption of even the material world. Christianity further introduced an essential public and historical element into the mythological framework. Jesus Christ, listen to this, was not a mythical figure but an actual historical person who fulfilled the Judaic messianic prophecies that we talked about before and brought the new revelation to a universal audience with the potential of all mankind as the new initiates rather than a select few. That is beautiful. See, before these mythologies were high up there, something that you had to grab to, something that you had to kind of secretly come into. And this Jesus movement comes in and says, no, no, no. These aren't mythologies. These are real histories. What was to the pagan mysteries an esoteric mythological process, the death-rebirth mystery, had in Christ become concrete historical reality enacted for all humanity to witness and openly participate in with the consequent transformation of the entire movement of history. 
It was this Jesus who took these ideas, these ancient historical ideas, and brought them to flesh and bone and made them concrete historical realities. These people did not ascend to Jesus because they thought about high theological concepts. They had an encounter with the real person, a real movement, real people who are living real ethics, real values in this world, and transformed the movement of history. One last quote from Tarnas, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, if you're friends with Facebook, on, with me on Facebook, you already saw this. With Christ's incarnation, the Logos had re-entered the world and created a celestial song, tuning the discords of the universe into perfect harmony, sounding the joy of the cosmic wedding between heaven and earth, God and humanity. And to the fragmentation that was the ancient world, to the ways in which we thought that there's rich and there's poor and there's upper class and there's lower class and there's aristocracy and there's common people and there's certain people that adhere to mythologies and high philosophies and there's other people that don't get it. This Jesus movement moves right on in and says, this is for everybody. This love, this sacrifice, this service, this community, this is for everybody. The redemption that Jesus brings, this is for everybody. The rescue from injustice that my life, Jesus is saying, brings is for everybody. The security of knowing that you have a home and a place with the eternal Father, with this cosmic order, this is for everybody. And these early Christians moved into this world with this message and again transformed history. So the question for us then is this. That was then, and now, third movement. This is now. This is New York City. And the question for us, I think, is still the same. Who do you say that he is? This question that the ancient people, the ancient Hebrews, had to answer, that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans had to answer, and came to grips with, with a very real, tangible Jesus. Concrete, historical reality is now a question that we ourselves must answer, ask and answer today. Who do you say that he is? Does Jesus and his life and his teachings actually make a difference, actually inform our experience when you're at work in the marketplace? When you're in education, when you're a teacher— when you're passing on, you know, to the next generation, the, the information and the inheritance that we have. When you're in international relationships, when you are doing your science, when you are doing your civil engineering, when you're at the keyboard or at the cubicle, does Jesus make a difference there? And if you understand and ask and embrace this question that Jesus is not just someone I believe in or a concept that I attain to, but the phenomenal cosmic power that lives within me that can transform as I follow him, as I understand his teachings, as I understand his life, as I understand the community that he has built together and put together. Maybe that could also transform our world, which is a little bit of why we've done what we've done. We've, Spark has attempted to really flesh out that this Jesus person, this movement that we are all about, is not just something that lives up here, but actually has physical, concrete realities in our everyday world. So for those of you who are scientists and working in biology, Jesus meets you there. His teachings, his life, the very breath that he breathes helps us understand that. 
And when we were working with technology and, and all of the work that we, all the seminar um, teaching that we did there is an attempt to bring that together as well. Um, our hope and our prayer through this series, as we've learned a little bit more about Jesus, is that the teachings of Jesus and the getting to know him and understanding in him does not come to you as an oppressive now you have to, but is ultimately an overflow that you are soaking in more and more of who this Jesus is. And it just gets in you more and more and more. And as you live your life in the different ways that you live, whether it's at work or at school or at home, that how you live then just overflows. It just overflows out of your heart and your soul. And that as we, you know, and we'll close with this song too, as we sing as Christ is the center of our lives, that it becomes more and more a part of our understanding of who we are. And it just begins to overflow into every single place that we have. One particular way to do that, Daniel mentioned a gospel reading group over the summer, and we're going to invite you to participate through that. And we are going to encourage you. This is the end of the Jesus series that we're teaching here um, during Sundays, but it's not the end of your journey of discovering of who this person is. Um, so we're going to encourage you to get involved with that and start reading and, and engaging with Jesus even more and more. And just like he transformed the world then, he can transform the world today as you engage with him more and more and learn and understand more. And once you're done with the Gospels or once you feel like you need a little bit more, there's plenty more to study. <laughs> and we can guide you in all sorts of different directions if you're interested. Now, I started with asking the question, I'll ask uh, Ryan and Abe if you guys come up and we'll start um, closing uh, with our song. I started with two particular things. What it is that you feel or what it is that you think, but the second is what it is that is real to you. And Gary Haugen in his book, Good News About Injustice, uses and talks about this in a very real, tangible way. In 1994, when the Rwandan genocide was happening, Gary Haugen was working for the government at that, at that particular time, and he was hearing stories about what was happening, reading news reports. And as he was engaging with this reality, which ultimately led him to leave his work and to start the International Justice Mission, he has this quote in his book that I think is really um, helpful for us. He says, but, the, but like most of the great ugliness transmitted by TV across the world and into my living room, the terror in Rwanda just did not seem real. It seemed true, but not real. Not to me. And so my question for us is simply this. Um, and this is the question that I want to wrestle with. And especially if you've been going to church for a long time or if you've been engaging with Jesus for a little bit, the question is simply this. Jesus and all of that that we've talked about throughout this entire series could very, very well be true. But is he real to you? Have you engaged with him? Have you opened your heart to him? Have you said, okay, here I am. Jesus, teach me. Speak to me. Um, illuminate something for me. Is he real in that sense? And so my hope and prayer for us is that as we ask this question, who do you say that he is? And it's our hope and our prayer that he is not just somebody that you believe in, but he's somebody that touches you, transforms you, engages you. Um, 
our prayer is through the rest of the existence of Spark and through the rest of the existence of who we are, that you will encounter the living Jesus, this cosmic, phenomenal cosmic power in this space and in each other and in the words that we say to one another and in the community that we build together and the songs that we sing together and the teachings that we engage together and that Jesus is not just up here, but he's in here and he's in here. That's our prayer, which is why we've moved from our core values now to the core person of Jesus that he would be center. He would be central. So we're going to sing this song one more time. And through that song, um, our hope and our prayer is that you would, if you're here and wherever you are on your journey or your track with Jesus, that you would open your heart just a little bit more and allow Jesus to come in just a little bit more, to overflow just a little bit more this cosmic, phenomenal, cosmic power of love and grace, this ordering thing behind the universe, the one that put it all together, that holds it all together, comes here and engages and transforms you here. Um, Jesus, thank you so much for this church and for um, the teachings that we've had here. Um, Thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to gather. We bless you tremendously, God. And as we take a look through history, I pray that our hearts and our minds are open just a little bit more to just how you have transformed people all along the way, that you have engaged people in the very real, tangible, concrete ways. So God, we pray that you would do that here uh, again in us and to this day. And as these people that are here as a part of Spark Uh, Go to their places of work and home and play and to all the different environments that they have. God, um, would you meet them there and overflow into their lives and into the people around them there? God, be real to us. And if there's anything in our hearts that that is hindering you from being more real, God, I pray that you would begin to work and chisel that out of our souls. I pray in your name.